Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. I've got so much to cover today, ladies and gentlemen, that you're probably not going to be able to keep up. Because what I want to do today is I want to go through many of the ideas and truths that I learned from Dr. Norman Geisler, because as you may know, last week, as we announced, he passed last week, I think it was July 1st. He would have been 87 this month, uh, Dr. Norman Geisler. For those of you who haven't heard of Dr. Geisler, he may have been a little bit of below the radar when it comes to apologists. There were better known apologists, such as Ravi Zacharias and maybe uh, Dr. William Lane Craig. Both of them were actually students of Dr. Geisler. Dr. Geisler for years taught at a number of, of seminaries and schools, uh, including Trinity in Illinois. He taught at Dallas Theological Seminary. He taught at Liberty. And he ultimately started a new seminary here in Charlotte, North Carolina that I attended called Southern Evangelical Seminary, SES.edu, a great place to get your apologetics and philosophical and theological training still, SES.edu. And, uh, he started that in 1992, and we uh, moved here, my family and I. At that time, my wife and I had three sons, five years of age and under. We moved from the D.C. area because I had just gotten out of the Navy, and we moved down to Charlotte, North Carolina in 1993 to attend Southern Evangelical Seminary. And then I had the opportunity to write a couple of books with Dr. Geisler. One was called Legislating Morality. Another's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And he and I did many seminars together over the years. In fact, we were doing a, a seminar called, I, uh, or called um, 12 Points That Show Christianity is True. And that turned out to be the book I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Now, how did we come up with that title? Well, I didn't come up with it. Dr. Geisler did. I just applied it to the book. What happened was when we were going through the 12 points that show Christianity is true, which is basically an outline that Dr. Geisler developed. Actually, he, he had a 10-point outline. And when we got together, we said, you know, we really probably have to add a couple of points in the front because he used to start with does or he, he would start with, with God exists and he'd give evidence for God exists. The problem was a lot of people at that point didn't believe in truth anymore. So we had to back up and put a couple of, of uh, points in front of, of uh, does God exist or God exists about truth. So we came up with truth about reality is knowable. That's point one. And point two is the opposite of true is false. Now, that seems so self-evident to you guys because you know about apologetics, but many people hadn't thought about that. So we had to put that up front. And then we had those other 10 points and we called it the 12 points that show Christianity is true. And I remember Dr. Geiser at one point going through evidence in the teleological argument, evidence for the fine tuning of the universe, and also evidence from the genome, the, uh, the DNA in every living thing. And it, it, it just cries out for a, a designer to be the cause. And he goes through all this evidence and he gets to the, to the end of it. And he goes, look, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And I said, man, I love that statement. And a year or two later, when we decided we got to write a book about this, I said, that should be the title. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And so that was the title. Now, 
well, I won't go there. I won't <laughs> tell you that the publisher didn't actually like the title. And uh, we said, no, sorry, that title's going to be the title. And they stuck with it, thankfully. And uh, that, uh, that title, I think, has helped uh, to a great extent make the book as popular as it has been uh, because it's a counterintuitive title. Now, the word faith in, in that title isn't the real definition of faith that uh, that the Bible would give or that Christians would believe. The definition of faith, of course, that Christians believe is faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. Faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. Uh, we're using the term, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We're using the term faith in that title. We're using it in the way it's colloquially understood in our culture. And the way it's understood in our culture, well, if you don't have evidence, you have faith. You know, it's just kind of wishful thinking. Uh, so it's we're using that <laughs> that particular definition in the title. But of course, that's not the true definition of faith. That's just to get a counterintuitive title for the book. In any event, what, we're, what I'm going to talk about today is I'm going to go through as fast as I can many of the great ideas that I learned from Dr. Norman Geisler. And many of these you can read in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, or the book Stealing from God. But let me just go through them as quickly as I can. Uh, let's start with truth. I think Dr. Geiser taught me more than any other important thing he taught me was how to think. And uh, the idea that you, you had to apply the law of non-contradiction to ideas. Now, we called this the roadrunner tactic in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And that is, when somebody says something, you ought to apply the claim to itself. And I called it the roadrunner tactic because it reminds me of Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. You know, Wiley Coyote would... would uh, blow by the roadrunner and be stuck in midair for that split second until he realized he had no ground below him. And that's kind of what you do when you apply a claim somebody makes to itself. You get them to realize that if their claim is self-defeating, they have no ground to stand on. So somebody says there's no truth. You're going to turn the claim on itself and say, is that true? Now, that particular idea was was came from Dr. Norman Geiser through another professor, Barry Leventhal. In fact, it's how I met Dr. Geiser. I met Dr. Geiser through Barry Leventhal. He was teaching a class at McLean Bible Church. He was the, the instructor for it, Barry was. And uh, he invited Dr. Norman Geisler to actually teach this uh, seminar, this, this weekend portion of, of the entire class uh, in early 1993. And so he actually came to D.C. and... I, my wife and I actually put him up at our house and that's how I got to meet him. And, uh, I remember Barry Leventhal saying, when somebody says there's no absolutes, don't let, don't let them get away with that. That's an absolute apply the claim to itself. And so I, I learned it from Dr. Kaiser through Barry Leventhal. And when we wrote the book, by the way, Barry Leventhal came to be a professor at SES at, at which he still is. And uh, he, there's a chapter, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It's really about his story, how he came to faith being a, a Jewish young man through the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 53. He actually came to faith through that prophecy, and it's in the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Anyway, the roadrunner tactic is turning a claim on itself. And what Dr. Geisler showed me is that most of the major philosophical systems of the past 300 years are self-defeating. In other words, they violate the law of non-contradiction. David Hume, uh, who died in 1776, the only true atheist of the Enlightenment, um, his thought uh, about 200 years after his, his uh, books, 
his his main argument was put in something known as the principle of empirical ver- verifiability, which says that something is only meaningful if it's true by definition or it's uh, self-evident. And uh, it turned out that, as Dr. Geisler pointed out, that particular principle isn't true by definition or self-evident, so it defeats itself. So Hume was trying to say that only things that could be empirically verified could be true. But that very statement can't be empirically verified, so it's self-defeating. Immanuel Kant came along after that in the 1800s and said, you can't know the real world. Now, I don't have time to get into why he said that. I won't get through all this material if I explain everything. You'll just have to get the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. In any event, uh, what what Geiser would say is, well, if Kant is saying you can't know the real world, then how does he even know it's there? I mean, to say you can't know the real world is to say something true about the real world, namely that you can't know it. <laughs> how, do, how can you get at it if you, if you can't know it, yet you're saying something about it? So Kant's view is self-defeating. Ludwig Wittgenstein came along and said, all God talk is meaningless. He wrote 500 pages, 500 page books about how God talk is meaningless, and it's full of God talk. Can you see the self-defeating nature there? In fact, atheists do this quite frequently. They, what they wind up doing is they utter self-defeating statements, and they exempt themselves from their own theories. For example, uh, Daniel Dennett says, consciousness is an illusion. Well, one wonders if he was conscious when he wrote that. I mean, he thinks his consciousness is not an illusion. He needs his consciousness in order to write books that say that consciousness is an illusion. He's exempting himself from his own theory. His viewpoint is practically self-defeating. Now, I've got a lot more, so don't go away. In fact, I'm probably giving you whiplash. I'm going to cram as much as I can into this episode as I can because Dr. Geiser has taught me so much. I'm Frank Turek. We're back in just two minutes. Don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. We're calling this program Norm Geisler's Greatest Hits, (laughs) according to me. I mean, he's got a lot more than what I'm telling you, but these are some of the things that have stuck with me over the years. By the way, his um, his life verse that he always signed his books with was Philippians 1.16, echoing the Apostle Paul. I'm put here for defense of the gospel. I'm put here for defense of the gospel. And he did that extremely well in terms of the evidence for Christianity. Uh, According to his website, when you add up all of the books he wrote and all the revisions he made to those books, these are books he wrote and co-authored, it's up to 129. 129 books. The guy lived just over 86 years, almost 87 years. He wrote 129 books. He's written more books than most people have read. Now, Ravi Zacharias came and did his funeral last week, and I said to Ravi after the... uh, after the uh, eulogy, he gave a great eulogy. Uh, I said to him, Robbie, there's one question that's not being asked of Norm right now. And that question is, Norm, couldn't you have done more? <laughs> the answer's no. And Robbie's not going to get that asked that question either. He's all over uh, the world, probably on the road about 200 days a year, talking about the evidence for Christianity. And uh, Norm Geiser did that 
extremely well, mostly through his books, although he did have a pretty robust speaking schedule as well. Imagine that, 129 books. Uh, and he taught me so much. Uh, another thing he taught about truth was something called the nothing but fallacy. What's the nothing but fallacy? Well, it's similar to what I mentioned just before the break. When someone like Daniel Dennett says consciousness is an illusion, um, he's saying his consciousness is nothing but an illusion. Well, in order to know something is nothing but an illusion, his consciousness, he would have to get beyond his consciousness to know that his consciousness is just an illusion. It's similar to saying, well, how do you know you're just having a dream? You have to get the more than knowledge of waking up to know what you just had was a dream. If you're going to say this is nothing but a dream, you'd have to get outside the dream to know it's nothing but a dream. And so that nothing but fallacy is very helpful as well, because I see atheists committing this all the time, especially when it comes to reason. On one hand, they say they're just molecular machines. They're moist robots. On the other hand, they're, they say they're beacons of reason. Well, if, if your reason is nothing but molecules bumping into one another, why should we believe anything you think, including the idea that atheism is true? You'd have to get outside your reason to know your reason is nothing but molecules. You'd have to get outside of your, of your brain to know your brain or your mind is nothing but your brain. In other words, you'd have to have a mind to know that. Now, all this I unpack in the book, Stealing from God. So if you want to go further, you can. Uh, I'm just trying to cram as much as I can here about what Dr. Geiser has taught me. How about uh, 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 what he taught me about knowing truth? Here are just some, some statements. Some of these are really pithy about truth. Uh, he said, Christians don't get brownie points for being stupid. Now, he's probably dating himself there. You know, brownies were like junior Girl Scouts, <laughs> and you would get brownie points uh, if you did certain good things. And it, it was almost thought of in, in Christianity in his generation, and maybe even today, that somehow you're more spiritual if you don't have answers. You just have uh, hopeful, wishful thinking, the colloquial definition of faith. No. That's not the case. The scriptures talk over and over about how we're supposed to have reasons for what we believe. Again, faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. He also said, one need not know everything in order to know something. Just because you don't know everything doesn't mean you don't know something. He also talked about the fact that there's a difference between being open-minded and empty-minded. Being open-minded about closed questions is like being empty-minded. We're not open-minded as to who the first president of the U.S. was. It would be empty-minded to say it wasn't George Washington, or I'm waiting for more data. In other words, some questions are closed. There's a difference between being open-minded and empty-minded. He also said you can apprehend truth about an infinite God, even if you can't completely comprehend him. That's similar to saying you, you don't need to know everything in order to know something. You can apprehend that there's an ocean in front of you, for example, even if you can't completely comprehend everything in the ocean. Yes, we can know something about God, even if we can't know everything about God, and we never will. God is the only perpetual novelty, as Robbie Zacharias put it. We're limited, finite beings, and we won't know everything about God. Even when we, we get to heaven, we won't. So we can apprehend there's an infinite God, even if we can't co completely comprehend him. He also taught me the difference between belief that and belief in, as we've talked about many times in this program. Belief that is of the head, but belief in is not just of the head, it's also of the heart. If, if you don't want to believe in God, you don't have to. Even the demons believe that God exists, but they don't trust in him. They don't want to trust in him. And I see that is one of the biggest issues today. It's not that people don't know there's a God. They don't want there to be a God. 
They don't want to trust in him because they think God is going to get in the way of what they want to do. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. He also said, you can bring everyone, you can't bring everyone to Christ, but you can bring Christ to everyone. In other words, it's not your decision that somebody accepts, accepts Christ. All you can do is, is, is offer them Christ, and then they have to make the decision. He said, Dr. Geiser said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. In other words, sometimes the gospel and the Holy Spirit goes out to somebody and their heart melts because they're open to it. Other times the gospel and the Holy Spirit goes out to someone and their heart hardens. The same sun melts that, that melts wax also hardens clay. It depends on the individual. As Jesus said, if your eye is good, then you will accept this. If not, you won't. If your heart is good, you'll accept it. If it, your heart isn't, you won't. In other words, people can resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, nothing ever gets to the heart without going through the head. Although sometimes we don't think about things long enough and we go with pure emotion, but we always interpret our emotions through our head. Sometimes though we interpret them inappropriately or incorrectly. So we always have to keep in mind that when we're having an emotional experience or some kind of experience, we need to interpret it through our mind and nothing gets to our heart without first going through our head. Greg Kokel put it this way. He said that emotion makes life delicious, but logic makes life safe. So don't just go with raw emotion. Make sure you evaluate what that emotion is about. Dr. Geiser also gave the advice, never add weak arguments to strong arguments, especially if you're having a debate. Don't deal with minor arguments. Deal with the major arguments that are good, because if you deal with only the minor arguments or the weak arguments then people will harp on those who are skeptics and ignore your stronger arguments because they have a, a heart that's hardening clay or that they have a heart that's hardened by the, by the Holy Spirit, hardened by the sun, rather than a heart that might be melted by the sun or the Holy Spirit. He also said, it's easy to smell a rotten egg. It's hard to lay a better one. I love that statement. Why? Because sometimes you'll have skeptics or atheists try and tear down Christianity and they'll say, well, this is all rotten. You guys are all wrong. But they don't have an alternative viewpoint. They think they have no burden of proof to come forth with a worldview or to come forth with, well, you explain how the universe got here. You explain why it appears to be designed. You explain where objective moral values come from. You explain why we have the laws of logic and consciousness and why it appears that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. You're claiming my, my case is rotten. My egg is rotten. But what's your better egg. What, what are you laying that's better? Well, it's certainly not materialistic atheism. You can't even get out of the gate if you're just a moist robot, a molecular machine. You can't explain anything that's material. And if your mind isn't, or you can't explain anything that's immaterial. And if your mind isn't immaterial, why should you believe a thing you think? You don't have a better explanation. You're claiming my worldview is rotten. What's your worldview? What's your explanation? He also pointed this out, Dr. Geiser did. He said, most religions have some truth in them. In fact, he said, you know, you wouldn't believe any of them if they had no truth. But he said, the question is, is the, is the religion that you're thinking about, is it a system of truth with some error or is it a system of error with some truth? And he said, I think, given the 
arguments we went through and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. He said, Christianity is a system of truth, but I might have some errors in my assessment of it in my mind, whereas other religions are a system of error with some truth. Look, if Christianity is true, then any non-Christianity is false. It doesn't mean that everything taught by another world religion is false. They have some truth in them. But where they differ from the Christian religion, if indeed Christianity is true, they would have to be false. Of course, it would, could be said opposite. You know, say if Islam is true, then wherever Christianity differentiated from Islam, it would be false. So this isn't just a Christian thing. This is just a logic thing. If Christianity is true, any place where a world religion differs from Christianity, at that place, at that point, it would be false. That's all he's saying here. So he's not saying that there is no truth in other religions. There are truth in other religions. But are they a system of truth with some error, or is it a system of error with some truth? And he would say, and I agree with him, other world religions are a system of error with some truth. Whereas Christianity is a system of truth, but I may, I may be wrong about some things in my assessment of it. How about with regard to God? What is he taught? that stands out to me. Well, when we do our, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentation. When we get to the cosmological argument, we say, look, everyone agrees. Even the atheists agree that the universe exploded into being out of nothing. No, no space, no time or matter. And, and here, here was the way he put it. Look, either no one created something out of nothing or someone created something out of nothing. Those are your only two options. Either no one created something out of nothing or someone created something out of nothing. Which view is more reasonable? Now, obviously, I think someone created something out of nothing. But notice the point here that atheists believe in miracles. They believe that no one created something out of nothing. That's a miracle. It just takes a lot more faith, using the colloquial definition of faith, to believe that than to believe that someone created something out of nothing. Obviously, if you got a miracle, you should have a miracle worker. How do you get a miracle with no miracle worker? That's clearly absurd. He also pointed this out. He's, he's quoting, Dr. Geiser's quoting Leibniz here. He said, if there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? The universe had a beginning, so the universe can't be the first cause, the uncaused first cause. There's got to be something beyond the uncaused first cause. And it sure seems that if space, matter, and time had a beginning, then whatever created space, matter, and time must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent. We've been through this on this program several times before. It's all in the book. I don't have enough faith, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist if you want to go further. By the way, you probably can't listen to this podcast at, at more than one time speed, right? You can't be listening at one and a half times speed because it would be way too fast and you wouldn't be able to keep up, right? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm going quickly. I want this to be the most content-rich podcast in honor of Dr. Norman Geiser. So that's what I'm doing here. Also, at the end of the day, there's only two choices, as Dr. Geiser put it. Either matter is eternal or mind is eternal. All worldviews, all world religions can be boiled down to two choices. Either matter is eternal or mind is eternal. Which is it? Well, matter we know is not eternal. Matter had a beginning. Matter's running down. Second law of thermodynamics. Matter is composed. It's put together by a composer then. So it means that at the end of the day, the essential uncaused first cause has got to be mind, not matter. And that comports well with Christianity. It comports well with theism. It doesn't comport well with other worldviews. All right. We're talking about Dr. Norman Geiser and what he's taught me, Frank Turek. I'm back in two minutes, so don't go anywhere. Hey, if you're listening to this uh, in a podcast of some kind, you need to go and sign up to, at the official 
cross-examined podcast because the one that just has the CE on it for cross-examined and it doesn't say official on it, that's going to not be updated after September 1st. We're going to try and funnel everyone over to the official cross-examined podcast right there on iTunes. You can also, by the way, listen to this on our app. If you don't have our app, download our app, two words in the app store, cross-examined. We just yesterday passed 200,000 downloads. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for putting positive reviews up there on the cross-examined official podcast iTunes site or wherever you do that. I see them on iTunes. Thank you for doing that. It helps move it up the charts. Continue to do that. That will help us get this podcast out to more people. Okay, today I'm Frank Turek. We're talking about many of the things Dr. Norman Geisler taught me over the years. As I say, I first met Dr. Geisler in 1993, and then he and I spent a lot of time together in the 90s and into the 2000s. Uh, until I graduated from seminary back in uh, 2005 when I got my demon there. Uh, then we started crossexamine.org. And I, st- I still ran into Dr. Geiser on occasion, but we spent a lot of time for about, oh, probably around 12 or so years. And so he's taught me so much, not only in person, but through his books. And we're going through some of the more prominent things that he taught me and has taught many other people, including Ravi Zacharias, William Lane Craig, Andy Stanley, many other pastors you might know about too, because... Um, Dr. Geiser's taught at a Dallas Theological Seminary. In fact, our guest last week, Dr. Michael Heiser, <laughs> had uh, Dr. Geisler for uh, classes at Dallas Theological Seminary. So he's taught uh, so many people so much. What else has he taught me about God? Here's what he said about God with regard to uh, the Creator. He said, you can't give what you haven't got. Now, that seems so commonsensical. It is. You can't give what you haven't got. God had to have the power to create the universe out of nothing. It turns out that atheists believe that nothing can give rise to something, something that has no power, nothing. Actually, it's not something. It's nothing. It's non-being gave rise to something. How does that work? You're giving up the entire scientific enterprise if you're going to doubt that every effect has a cause. If you're going to say that something can give rise or that nothing can give rise to something, non-being can give rise to something. God had to have the power in order to create the universe out of nothing. If he doesn't have that power, if, 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 if nothing existed, nothing would exist right now. That's why the question, if there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing is such a piercing question. Uh, he also pointed this out. He said, we know God through his effects. And of course, he got this from Thomas Aquinas. He was one of the uh, few evangelicals who understood the value of Aquinas. He was a Thomist. And uh, Aquinas basically pointed out that we know God by his effects. We know there's a, a, a creation, so there's got to be a creator. We know there's design in the universe. There has to be a designer. We know that uh, there's a moral law impinging on us. There must be a moral law giver. In other words, we reason from effect back to cause. We don't know God directly right now. We know him through his effects when it comes to natural revelation. Now we can go know God more directly through special revelation through the Bible, but we know there's a God, a creator, even without the Bible, even without the scriptures. We know that there is someone out there who created this universe and is a moral being who has given us his moral law through, which is derived directly from his nature and has written that on our hearts. Uh, how about morality, politics, and ethics? D- uh, Dr. Geiser taught me so much there. 
Think about a triangle. At the top of the triangle, you have God. In the middle of the triangle, you have people. And in the bottom of the triangle, you have things. And that should be our ethical hierarchy. That should be what drives us when we're making ethical decisions. Our first duty is to God, then to people, then to things. Simple but true. I remember Dr. Geiser, probably 1992, 1993. It had to be 1993, maybe even 1994. He was given a, a, a lecture at... Um, not a lecture, a sermon at Calvary Church, which is where the seminary was. And uh, it was uh, during a political season. And he pointed out that all laws legislate morality. And that just a big light bulb came on in my head. I never heard it that way before because I always heard people say, you can't legislate morality. Well, it turns out that's all you can legislate. Every law declares one behavior right and the opposite behavior wrong. So I went to Dr. Geiser and I said, that needs to be a book. So we got together, we put the outline together and we wrote this book called Legislating Morality. Is it wise? Is it legal? Is it possible? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. You can't avoid legislating morality. And so that whole book uh, is a testament to that initial sermon that Dr. Geisler came forth with. And uh, he also was the one that said... In fact, we're having lunch one day, and he, and he said this when we were talking about imposing values on people. He said, look, these aren't my values. And again, the light bulb went off in my head. What a great thought. Yeah, they're not my values. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't make up the fact that abortion's wrong, that murder's wrong, that rape is wrong, that theft is wrong, that men were made for women and women were made for men. And the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society, which is the reason the government's involved in marriage to begin with, is to legally recognize that relationship over every other relationship. I didn't make any of this up. These aren't my values. These aren't your values. They just happen to be the values. The one Thomas or the values that Thomas Jefferson said were self-evident. And where did he get that from? He got that from the moral law written on his hearts. And Paul actually teaches this in Romans chapter two, where he says the Gentiles are not of the law of the law written on their hearts. God has put the moral law on our hearts. That's where our, that's how our government started. And so there, when there are people out there claiming there's no natural law or natural law is silly, like Joe Biden did that during the, uh, the Clarence Thomas hearings, Joe, read the Declaration of Independence. Our country's founded on natural law. Not only that, he taught uh, graded absolutism. What's graded absolutism? Uh, easy for me to say, graded absolutism. In his book, Christian Ethics, Dr. Geiser pointed out, what do you do when you have a moral conflict? For example, if you're uh, hiding Jews in Nazi Germany during World War II and you get a knock at the door. Schnell, 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 schnell. Has do you near? I mean, what do you do? Oh, you're, you're supposed to tell the truth, right? They're going to go and kill those Jews. Is that what you're supposed to do? No. There, when there's a conflict between two absolutes or two moral principles, the lesser gives way to the greater. You have a greater obligation to protect a, a living being, to protect life from a guilty murderer than you do to tell the truth to a guilty murderer. So you would say there are no Jews here. Nine. No Jews, no Juden. But some people are going, what do you do when you have conflicts? The lesser gives way to the greater. And that is in his book, Christian Ethics. How about miracles? Well, one of the most clarifying books I've ever read on miracles was his, books call, his book called Signs and Wonders, Dr. Geister's book on signs and wonders. Now, I don't have time to explain a whole bunch about this, but he pointed out there are six different kinds of unusual events. There's anomalies, magic, psychosomatic, satanic signs, divine providence, and miracles. 
And we took basically that book and put all that into chapter eight of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So if you want to see the distinctions between those unusual events, go there uh, to chapter eight of I don't have enough. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And one of the biggest problems we have when we're talking about miracles is we confuse divine providence with a true miracle. So get the book to see the difference between the two. What did he teach about science evolution and the question of origins? Well, his book Origin Science was so helpful because he pointed out there's a difference between how something originated and how it operates. And this is the key to understanding what appears to be a conflict between science and religion. There's no conflict between science and religion. There may be conflicts between some interpretations of the scientific or natural world and, say, the Bible. But there's no conflict between the Bible and, say, science. It's just there may be a conflict between some interpretations of how you interpret the natural world and how you interpret uh, the Bible. Because how something originated is different than how something operates. And I unpack this at great length in the book, Stealing from God, if you want to go further. But what's really going on here is when scientists are trying to say, we don't need religion or we don't need the Bible or we don't need God because we have science. What they're missing is the fact that it's just because you understand how the world operates doesn't mean you know how it originated. To, 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 to say that were the case, it would be like saying, because I'm a great mechanic and I can figure out how to fix a Model T, I have no need for Henry Ford. No, how a Model T operates is different from how it originated. How the universe operates is different from how it originated. Just because you're really good at understanding how the universe operates now and how we can harness the four natural forces to make our lives more comfortable, that doesn't mean there's no one that created the universe and sustains the universe and sustains the four natural forces that we can harness for our own comfort. There's a difference between the origin of the universe and the operation of the universe. And by the way, you need God for both. Again, get the book Stealing from God if you want to go further in that. Uh, also, <laughs> you've probably, if you've ever seen Dr. Geiser lecture, when he talks about DNA, the four-letter genetic alphabet, which is in every living thing in the individual's genome. He always gave the example. He said, if, if you were, if you were a, a child and you came downstairs one morning, say you're a teenager, you come downstairs one morning to have a bowl of alphabet cereal and you see the alphabet cereal is knocked over on your table and you see that the letters in the alphabet cereal spell, take out the garbage, mom. What are you going to assume? Cat knocked the box over? Earthquake shook the house? No, you're going to say that that's intelligent design from an intelligent being. In other words, there must be a mind behind it. Mom did that because you can knock over alphabet cereal from now till doomsday. You'll never get take out the garbage mom. Whenever you see a message, you always know it comes from a mind. And Dr. Geisler's point here is, is that when we're saying that DNA points back to an intelligent being, this is not a God of the gaps argument. It's not saying, oh, I don't have a natural explanation, so God must have done it. No. It, we don't just lack a natural explanation for the message found in DNA. It's that a message found in DNA is positive evidence for an intelligent being. So when you see take out the garbage mom, you know it had to be an intelligent being. You don't just lack a natural explanation. Similarly, when you see a genome that's 3.2 billion letters long, that's in every one of your 40 trillion cells. When you see that genome, all the letters are in the right order. You don't just lack a natural explanation. 
You're, it's not a God of the gaps argument to say there must have been some intelligence to do that. You have positive, empirically verifiable evidence in the genome itself to say that it had to come from an intelligent being. So it's not a God of the gaps argument. How about on election and free will? He wrote a great book called Chosen But Free. And I remember going to his house one day. This had to be 20 years ago because I had a question about this. And I just remember him saying this. It doesn't matter that God elected to create this universe. People are still free. Exactly. Just because God elects to create a universe and elects the people in the universe doesn't mean we're not free. By definition, when God elected to create the universe, if he's all knowing, he knows who's going to believe and who isn't. But that doesn't mean that the people in the universe don't have free will. Just because God knew what they were going to do. I mean, I knew when I had kids that they would sin. That doesn't mean I'm causing them to sin. My parents knew when they had me that I would sin. But that doesn't mean my parents were causing me to sin. Knowing something's going to happen isn't the same as causing it in a, tri in a strict deterministic way. And so, yes, people are chosen, but we're still free. And I'll talk more about that if I'm predestined to right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're talking about what Dr. Norman Geiser taught me back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type Cross-Examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Four or five years ago, ladies and gentlemen, I put a post on our website, crossexamine.org, called the Top Christian Apologists. Maybe it was the Top 10, something like that. Anyway, you can go find it on our website. Maybe it was the Top 20. I put Dr. Norman Geiser at the top because of what he taught me. Now, you may have other people that have taught you more fine. I just put him at the top because I spent so much time with him and he taught me so much. And what we're doing today is we're going through uh, some of the major ideas that uh, Dr. Norman Geiser communicated to me. Let's talk about um, a little bit more about election and free will. He said the image of man or sorry, the image of God in man is effaced, not erased. Because hard five point Calvinists will say that the image of God in man is erased, that we're completely dead in our sins in the sense that we can't even know right from wrong. Well, Dr. Geiser rightfully said, no, the image of God is not erased. It's effaced. If it's erased, then we have no moral culpability at all. We have no capacity to even know right and wrong. If that's the case, how can God hold us morally accountable? That would be unjust. And he went on to say, the problem I have with hyper-Calvinism is it makes God the author of evil. Because if God does everything, that means he caused Satan to sin, and he caused Adam to sin, and he causes you to sin. Now, that, that makes God the author of evil. It makes God a voluntaristic God rather than a God whose nature is essentially good. Again, you can get his book, Chosen But Free, if you want to go further on that. How about the question of evil? Dr. Geiser famously put it this way. He said, evil doesn't disprove God. It might prove that there's a devil out there, but it doesn't disprove God. Why? Because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. Because what we mean by objective good is God's nature. Here's some pithy things he used to say as well. Sometimes you have to go through the wilderness to get to the promised land. In other words, you got to go through difficulty to get morally better. He also said it took one day to get Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. That's another way of making the same point. 
He said, this is not the best possible world, but it might be the best possible way to get to the best possible world with free creatures. Sure, this world would be better with one less murder, one less rape. But in order to get to the best possible world, sometimes you have to go through the wilderness. If you're going to have free creatures, which means they may sin, and if they sin, you've got to find a way to redeem them, you have to allow them the free will to sin because... Only through free will can you have love. So while we don't have the best world now, we may be able to get the best possible world with free creatures by having the kind of world we have now where people can make free choices to either follow God or not. In his debate with Rabbi Harold Kushner, who tragically lost his son at a very young age, he actually, uh, Dr. Geiser wrote a book on it called The Roots of Evil. And he answered Dr. Kushner this way. He said, why didn't God, or Dr. Kushner said, why didn't God save my son? And Dr. Geiser said, well, God didn't save his own son, Jesus, but he didn't save him because a much greater good came from it. And indeed it did. And in fact, since then, I've done more research on this topic and the ripple effect really helps us understand why we don't understand <laughs> why particular evils occur or why God allows them to occur because God can use these things to ripple forward into the future to bring good later, even if we can't see it. How about with regard to the Bible? What did God, or what did Dr. Geiser teach about with regard to the Bible? The book you need to get other than I don't have enough faith to be an atheist uh, that'll really help you in your Bible study is a book called When Critics Ask. Now it's called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. Trust me, get the book. If you just read the introduction about inerrancy and mistakes we make interpreting the Bible, it's worth the price of the book. Here are some of the things he says, and I don't have time to explain all these. Don't assume the unexplained is the unexplainable. Because we, if we continue to do research, maybe we'll be able to explain it. He uses an example with the Hittites from the Bible. We discovered the Hittite library, I think, in 1975. The Bible were the only people, was the only source that mentioned the Hittites. And people thought, well, the Bible's wrong. Those people never existed. Well, we've since discovered the Hittites did exist. He also said, science and the Bible don't conflict. What may conflict in so, is some interpretations of the scientific and biblical data. I mentioned that before. He said, the Bible is a human book with human characteristics. Yes, it's inspired, but it still uses human characteristics. Even Paul says, look, I don't even remember who I baptized. In, in I think, 1 Corinthians 1 or 2. I don't even remember who I baptized. Well, why didn't God just get him to remember? Maybe because if he did, that would defeat Paul's point. And Paul's point was saying, baptism doesn't save you. The gospel does. So I'm not even going to remember who I baptized because I didn't come here to baptize. I came here to preach the gospel. Now, you should get baptized as a result of responding to, to the gospel, but baptism doesn't save you. So keep in mind that the Bible uses human characteristics, even forgetfulness, <laughs> even some inadequacies, because it is written by men inspired by God. Also, he said, don't assume divergent reports contradict. You know, one gospel says there was one angel at the tomb. There were two. Oh, these are two divergent accounts. They're contradictory. No, they're not. They're just divergent. The one gospel doesn't say there was only one angel at the tomb. It just mentions one. It's not a contradiction for one reporter to say there was one diplomat at a meeting and he just mentions the one. 
He doesn't mention there was only one. He just mentions this one guy. And another reporter says that diplomat and another diplomat were there. That's not a contradiction. Those are not complimentary or those are not contradictory. They are complimentary. He said, don't assume the Bible approves all that it records. A lot of people think, well, polygamy is in the Old Testament. That means that, you know, the Bible must uh, endorse polygamy. No, it doesn't endorse polygamy. In fact, Deuteronomy 17, 17 says don't multiply wives. The Bible records a lot of things it doesn't approve of. There's a difference between a prescription and a description. And just because something is described doesn't mean God has prescribed it. Also, he points out the Bible uses observational, non-technical language, like it talks about the sun rising and sun setting. And we think, oh, that's an error. No, it's not an error. I mean, even today, in today's scientifically enlightened age, when you watch the news, the meteorologist tomorrow is going to say sunrise tomorrow at 611. He's not going to say earth rotation will become apparent at 611. The Bible uses observational, non-technical language. This is all from Dr. Geister's book, written, of course, with uh, uh, our other seminary professor, Dr. Tom Howe, at ses.edu. That's the seminary you need to go to. Get the book, The Big Book of Bible Difficulties, and uh, it will help you on many of these questions regarding questions about the Bible. Here are some other sayings Dr. Geister said about the Bible. Only one book, the Bible, I read to believe. All other books I only consider. He also said, after you use reason to discover the Bible is true, you don't use reason to doubt it. I mean, if it really is true, if you've used your reason to, to actually give evidence that the Bible is true, once you know it's true, then don't use your reason to doubt it. He said, and this is probably not original with him, but I like what he said. In fact, look, <laughs> much of what he said is probably not original with him, just like much of what I say is not original with me. That's why I'm going through all this, because so much of what you've heard me say I've learned from Dr. Norman Geiser, and perhaps he's learned it from others. But look, if you had to stop and give credit to everybody that you've learned things from, you'd hardly get through saying anything. <laughs> anyway, um, he said this, either this book, the Bible, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book, the Bible. He says, everyone's cup in eternity will be overflowing, but not everyone's cup will be the same size. Yes, Dr. Geisler will have a bigger cup than me. <laughs> the Apostle Paul will have a bigger cup than perhaps Dr. Norman Geisler, but everyone's cup will be overflowing because there are different reward rewards in heaven, just like there are different punishments in hell. How about with regard to God's will? Here's what Dr. Geisler said about this. He, in fact, he tells a little story when he was in seminary at one point and a missionary came during the chapel to speak to the seminary students. He said this, the missionary said this, I've been a missionary for 14 years and I was never called to go. And Dr. Geiser remembers sitting there going, good night. I've heard people who are called and didn't go, but I never heard anyone who wasn't called and went. And then the missionary said it again. He said, I've been a missionary for 14 years and I was never called to go. I was just commanded like the rest of you. Oh man, <laughs> talk about convicting. And here's how Dr. Geiser put it. He said, where God puts a period, let no man put a question mark. You don't have to pray about going to be a missionary. You don't have to pray about helping the poor. You don't have to pray about asking or, or telling your neighbor about Jesus. You don't have to pray about any of those things. Why? Because it's already been commanded. Now, it doesn't hurt to pray. Don't get me wrong. But you shouldn't be asking for enlightenment about these things. God has already enlightened you. Look at the scriptures and they will tell you what you ought to do. Dr. Geiser also said this, the will of God is never contrary to the word of God. The will of God is never contrary to the word of God. In other words, if you think you're getting some new revelation from God, whatever that means, 
and it contradicts the word of God, it's not from God. It's from the other side. I mean, as a pastor, uh, Dr. Geist was a pastor for a while. I've been a pastor briefly. <laughs> that didn't turn out too well. I don't have the patience to be a pastor. But I know many pastors, maybe you're listening now, you're a pastor, a deacon, elder of some kind, and you have people come to you for counseling and they'll say, God told me to leave my wife. Really? And, and there's none of the biblical justifications for divorce here? And you're, you think God told you that? No, that's not from God. That's from the other side. Because the will of God is never contrary to the word of God. I mean, why would God even write a Bible if he was going to tell you what to do every day directly? I'm not saying God can't do this. Of course, he can do it if he wants to. But his primary means of communication is through the word. And the word is the standard by which we use to discover whether any impression we get uh, could be from God or not. So the point here is, is that the, the will of God is never contrary to the word of God. So if you want to know what you ought to be doing, go to the word of God, particularly the epistles. Why? Because they have more application for the, for the modern day Christian than any other part of the scriptures. Uh, everything Paul wrote and all the other epistle writers wrote, Word for word, they have more application than any other place in the Bible. So the will of God is never contrary to the word of God. Dr. Geist also said this about hell. Hell proves that God is love and man is free. Now, I don't have time to unpack that. You're going to have to get one of his books to understand that. But the point is, is that God leaves us alone at one point. That's what hell is. He separates us from, from himself because we don't want him. God will not force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. Now, Dr. Geiser has taught me so much more than this, but these are just some of the things I wanted to share with you, and I hope there was enough content in this podcast. Tell this podcast or tell about this podcast to other people, if you will. Get them to sign up for it as well. I'm Frank Turk. It's great being with you. And you can go to normgeiser.com to learn more about Dr. Geiser, and you ought to. Get his books. Learn more from him. He's with the Lord now, but he's left a great legacy. All right. I'm Frank Turk. I'll see you again here next week. We hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you think our podcast needs to reach more people, here's what you can do to help. Go to iTunes and type cross-examined official podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless. <laughs>